For the most part, all of the Earth observation and the sensors in space, they are literally delivering data that is hours old. In a war fighting situation, getting data that's eight hours old, that can mean the difference between a won battle and a lost battle. We have the capability to solve that, and it's not being solved. The space economy is stuck in the dial-up age. We're standing by. everybody, welcome back to New Space. I'm your host, John Severance. We often think of space as this quiet, dark void. There's no gravity, no sound, just a vast silence. But up in space right now, there are thousands and thousands of satellites collecting information. And they have a lot to say. But since you're speeding around the globe, you're probably not above the ground station where you need to send down the information that you have. If we're collecting information from space that needs to go somewhere and go somewhere fast, well, we need the internet. And that's exactly what our next guest, Dave Bettinger, CEO of Spacelink, is doing. Putting the internet in space. I just want to open up with a couple of questions about your background and how you ended up at Spacelink. So can you just give us a, a brief overview of your career in the space industry and then how that led to Spacelink? And you're also a first-time CEO, so that, that's kind of cool. How, how do you feel about that? Yeah, it, it's been a long career. I just crossed my 30th year in satellite communication. It was back in 1991, I, I left grad school and got a job at uh, a company called Hughes Network Systems. It was a fantastic company to learn the trade of doing engineering work. I got my master's in electrical engineering and I spent five years there and really thought I would have entered my career there. But in, back in 96, I kind of got a, a bug. I got the startup craze, but I was young enough and, and stupid enough probably to take advantage of a startup that was starting. So I was one of the founders of a a little company called Comsoft that uh, struggled for a couple of years, but we were, you know, trying to do a, an internet router for space. And back in the mid '90s, Ethernet wasn't even a, a standard thing for everybody back then. So it was kind of an interesting a- approach. Well, uh, we changed our name and, and became iDirect. And so I spent 18 years at iDirect as the, the chief technology officer. And then I got a new craze. The Leo craze was happening again. I, I wouldn't say it was the first time. Because uh, the late 90s, there was a Leo craze, and then it died down for another 15 years or so. In 2014, I got approached by a former a business colleague. He wanted me to come on board to Google, where a, a project was, they were going to do a very large Leo project for communications to broadband to, to serve the world. And it was really exciting, and I couldn't help myself. And I, you know, I kind of wanted to get back into that startup phase yet that was going to Google. So it was, you know, going from employee number two to employee number 55,020 or something. Uh, It was an interesting time, but we only spent three months there before we decided to take the project outside of Google. So we founded OneWeb back in July of uh, 2014. And as one of the founders of OneWeb, it was back in the exciting time again of, of really, you know, bootstrapping yourself and, and, and picking it up and trying to attract a team and get something going, raise funding. So it was a very exciting time. And it was a project that nobody else was doing at that time. We really hit the ground running and I ended up spending seven years looking after first the initial technology that is what, what's being deployed now as Gen 1, but that grew into an advanced technology. And so after seven years, we grew OneWeb into a large, respectable company. But 
I was kind of wanting the small experience again. And so Spacelink was a company that was being uh, considered at the time. And they approached me to be the CEO. And, you know, of course, my initial reaction was CEO. No, I, I'm a CTO. I'm not a CEO. And the more they talked to me, the more they convinced me that there was something that I could do. And there was just so much uh, that was attractive about, about Spacelink. One, it was a startup again, which is my, my true love. Two, advanced technology, being able to do stuff that, that I wasn't even yet doing at iDirect or at OneWeb. So I was really excited about taking some of the stuff that I had learned over the past seven years and putting it into place. It was a new market. We were not trying to chase the planes, trains, and automobiles and consumers on the ground. So that was interesting to me. And it was medium Earth orbit, Mio. I'd had the beginning of my career for many years in, in geo and the geosynchronous Earth orbit. Uh, I did the Leo project for for seven years, and now uh, now I'm in Neo. So it, it was just it was a really good opportunity for me, and it was it was time for me to move on. And and I've been extremely happy since I, I made the decision to join. Awesome! Wow, CEO, that's cool. <laughs> Got the best of both worlds: they're at the top position and a startup, right? And then it is true that you're doing something that. At least I haven't heard someone explain. Well, I was just thinking when you were talking about your experience too, I was like, this guy must really enjoy stress. Every time you got to the top of a company, you decided to leave and start at a startup from square one. <laughs> it's in my DNA. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, let's talk about your latest company, Spacelink. We were kind of digging into it a little bit. And I was looking at your mission and whatnot, and this term always in sight. And my interpretation of that was kind of like a dual meaning, like your MEO satellites are kind of always in sight, but also it lets your customers kind of have their earth and data always in sight. So could you kind of talk through that mission and just why being in this field is important at all in the first place? Yeah, yeah, I, I would love to. Spacelink is building the information superhighway for the rapidly growing space economy. That's our true mission. We're an infrastructure play. We are, we're doing something for, that solves a problem out there. And always in sight, I think you hit, you hit on it. It really has dual meetings. That's our tagline. Our customer base is going to be space assets, typically in low Earth orbit. And so with that, we, our satellites are always in sight of the LEO satellites, which means they can always talk to us. And on top of that, our ground stations on the ground are always in sight of our MEO satellites. And so it, it gives us the, the double advantage of, uh, of being able to provide continuous connectivity to, to the space assets, the market that we're driving. Awesome. And then, so kind of talking about why it's important, obviously everyone wants like a quicker revisit rate and everything. Those seem to be big terms. So kind of why is a company like yours important to all of these other companies? Great question. The fact remains is there's a huge growth in the number of satellites that are being put into space. Most of them are going to lower Earth orbit. Some of them are the large constellations like OneWeb, Starlink, Kuiper, Telesat. But really, the majority of them still are, are satellites that are up there for a, a very particular purpose. They're, they're collecting data. They're doing some sort of uh, mission that really can only be done from low Earth orbit. Yet, they're living in the dial-up it's, you know, Sarah, you're probably too young to remember this, but John, you are not. You remember the times in which you wanted to go onto the internet? And so you sat down at your computer, 
hit a button, it dialed up, made those awful noises, and and, and suddenly you were connected and, and getting your data to and from yeah. where you wanted to get it to. That's that's really the way it is today in space. Yet the rest of the world on the ground and terrestrial side have moved on, and we expect always on broadband connectivity. And so it's really an inhibitor to the space economy that's growing up there. So we're familiar, obviously, with satellite communications where, you know, the the satellite's like a Wi-Fi router in space, right? That's broadband back down on Earth. Seems like what you're doing is an internet in space for space. Yeah, that's exactly right. I think on your website, you'll see that we're we're building a secure Wi-Fi network in space. That's kind of how we describe it. And that is mostly true, but it's a, a little bit of a misnomer. It's very true because when you think of Wi-Fi on Earth, it's the ability, no matter where you are, to go and get connected easily to the internet and, and, and obviously transfer your data and, and do what you need to do. And it's always available, you know, typically in your house and other, uh, other institutions that you're going to, you have Wi-Fi connectivity. Well, that's the type of, of thought that we're trying to build for, for the LEO assets, for the space assets that are up there collecting data. They need data. They need tasks. They, they need to download their data. And, and right now, that's just not possible with the, the current place. So we're absolutely doing something different. And it's kind of funny. I was just thinking about like, you know, you've all these high tech companies spending billions of dollars to send these sophisticated satellites into space. But then imagining them just kind of having a dial up connection, being unable to chat. It's just a weird dichotomy of kind of the technology levels there. Yeah. The way they operate today, the LEO assets is they, you know, John, you are correct. There are a number of satellite applications which are serving terrestrial communications needs, right? So you have a, a broadband user at their house. They put an antenna on their route. They bounce their signal off of the, the current LEO satellite or a GEO satellite or even MEO for some of the, the businesses are out there. And, and then that data gets back hauled to a, a gateway, a connection point into the internet. And that's how they're connecting. But that's a terrestrial application. The, the space side, the only way for them to do their data transfer today really is with with what we call what's growing the economy that's growing ground station as a service. When their Leo satellite, you know, they're orbiting the Earth every ninety minutes. When they happen to cross a gateway, then they can download the data that they've collected, and they can get new tasking orders or upload uh, data of where to go take pictures next, where to go take radar images, all that type of stuff. And it's really limiting, and so they end up spending, you know probably less than 6% of their, of their orbit in connectivity with, with the ground. And that's really limiting to what's, for the most part, most applications for what they're trying to do. Yeah. So I would imagine, like, if you look at the EO market, I know you serve many markets, Earth Observation. Are there missions that are basically real-time focused? You know, like, okay, there's a crisis happening. I need to get this information down to the right person now versus Hey, I'm going to take some photos and upload into a database and then some researcher is going to look at them. It doesn't really matter. So is there a sector of EO where real time is really what they're all about? The sector really doesn't exist today. There may be some classified government assets that somehow are getting their data back. But for the most part, all of the Earth observation and the sensors in space, they are literally delivering data that is hours old. Uh, I know one of our customers, they have an SLA with their end customers for the data they're collecting that is eight hours, eight hours, right? So a lot can happen in eight hours. One of the great use cases that we talk about uh, is kind of a humanitarian financial use case. 
look at all of the, the gigafires that are happening in the Southwest United States, over Australia, most parts of the world end up having a, a problem with forest fires. We have these satellites up there taking continuous pictures of the earth. They can detect fire, yet eight hours later, deliver it to the authorities, if they're lucky enough to get that kind of data, to know that a, a fire was there eight hours. Well, in eight hours, a fire grows into a gigafire quite often. And, and you know, the humanitarian impact is unbelievable with the lost natural resources, human life, the impact on businesses, insurance. It's really, really a big problem. Yet we have the capability to solve that. And it's not being solved because they don't have connectivity today. So that's an example of how EO could could absolutely help a, a very, very big problem. Yeah, that's that's huge. So I have a question about the technology involved. So I know you'd use the term Wi-Fi network in space and then also the term a relay system. So I was reading one of your interviews where you're saying that basically the LEO satellite talks to your MEO satellite, your MEO satellite talks to the Earth station. And so it's relaying data. It's like handing it off, right? So can you talk about that and, and then versus is the Wi-Fi network in space something bigger? Is that like an evolution of where you're going? And you talked about using lasers and I didn't understand all the tech, <laughs> but maybe there's still, <laughs> you're still probably the CEO with a CTO's mind. So <laughs> can you walk us through your current technology and then a bit of your technology roadmap where you're going? Data relay is exactly how you explain it. We are a intermediate point in getting the data from the sources or the destinations, which is the LEO satellites in the ground and back into the, the cloud for processing and ultimately to the end users, we are just a part of that. So we're a, effectively a backhaul for the sky. When I joined, we were heading down a path of continuing to use RF technology, which is the most widely used form of communications in the world and in space to be able to provide those connectivity. So Wi-Fi kind of made sense uh, to call ourselves at that point. Uh, then I started to look around um, and earlier this year, I, I pivoted Spacelink to go into a new direction. We basically advanced our roadmap five years in an instant. We looked around and I, I've been looking at optical technology or laser communications technology while I was at OneWeb for uses uh, on future generations of the, the OneWeb constellation. And I realized that it had come a long way. It's been around forever. It's the same technology used for fiber optics on the ground, except you're sending it through space as opposed to sending it through a fiber. And it turns out that there has been a lot of work in the past four or five years to make optical intersatellite link technology not only possible, very high speed, you know, that there's huge benefits in moving to an optical link. And they work and they're achieving the highest technology revenue level, TRL-9. There's a lot of applications up there already that have already achieved TRL-9. And there's a lot of companies that are achieving that uh, this year. So I realized what was going around me and I didn't want to get past, you know, I was going to go down a first generation of an RF-only satellite. And I was worried about getting laughed at a, a startup company. We really needed to, to step it up and advance ourselves such that we could lead as opposed to uh, following it with our second generation. So I, I turned us around and uh, started talking to some of the companies out there to do an optical intersatellite links and realized that applications like um, the US government, they both with DARPA and the Space Development Agency have had a huge push towards using optical technology for communications in space. And 
they've created an industry that didn't even exist three years ago. Now there's 10 players at least that are all agreeing upon an open standard for optical communications. And so we adopted that standard. We are following what the SDA is doing uh, with their Tranche 1 satellites. Uh, there's a number of vendors that we can call on to, to be able to have user terminals to be able to do that. And they're readily available now. I mean, it's, you know, it's a growing market. We're at the infancy, but it's not something I have to go prove to investors that it works. It is here today and we're taking advantage of it. Now, Lasercom versus RF. You heard me say we're moving from RF to, to laser. It's all the same physics. Laser Tom is just a much smaller wavelength than RF technology. And so uh, a lot of the same principles uh, apply, but there's a lot of advantages. The four big advantages that we talk about with LaserCom and why we've moved there, uh, one is, is it's, it's more economical, uh, even though it's, it's newer than RF technology. Secondly, LaserCom is ideally suited for space. When you're trying to do it on Earth, you have the atmosphere, you have clouds, you have all sorts of different perturbations that happen to the signal that, that make it difficult to do. It's being used, but typically they put it inside a fiber. A fiber keeps the light safe from all the other perturbations that might happen out there. Space is an ideal use for that. The third one is the security. One of the, the, the key things that the departments of defense around the world worry about are they want something that is low probability of intercept. So they want to make sure that adversaries can't listen to the signal and they want a low probability of interference. They don't want to be jammed when they're trying to use the signal. You all heard stories about how both of those happen. Well, with a laser beam, you know, think of a laser pointer pointed at the wall. It's a very, very narrow beam of light. And you would literally have to be behind our LEO customer to be able to intercept or behind our MEO uh, satellite to be able to intercept that signal or to interfere it. So it's naturally much more secure than an RF signal that has a much wider B because of the wavelengths they're using. That's really interesting, though, because I feel like when we're looking into all these new space companies, all their things are like, how do we make this Earth technology work in space? But with the lasers, you're like, oh, it's perfect for space. It works worse on Earth. So that's kind of a funny dichotomy there. But you mentioned your markets. Maybe you could walk us through that a little bit. I know um, we kind of talked about how a space link is serving people kind of with more urgency. It almost sounds like it'll open up the market to more use cases that we just can't do at all right now. So could you maybe talk about a few markets, maybe like defense and intelligence, any of your customers that you're targeting? Absolutely. So, you know, for, first and foremost, as an infrastructure company, our, our target market is anybody that needs to move data from space back to the earth or vice versa. And so there's a couple of sub markets that kind of breaks into. First, there's the, what we call this, the satellite data market, which is really sensor satellites that are orbiting the earth uh, today. And, and it's a, a huge growing market. There is visual earth observation satellites. They're taking pictures and movies and stuff. They got to get their data to the ground. There's synthetic aperture radar. We are talking to all those players today. Uh, they have the same problem. They're just taking pictures of earth in a, in a different frequency, not visual, infrared sensors, weather satellites. There's all sorts of different satellites up there that are generating data that need to get it to the ground in a more timely fashion that can lead to a much higher value to their end customers' use of that data. And we just want to be a part of that. So, so that's one market. 
defense and intelligence. Uh, the fact remains is that a lot of the use of the data that's being collected up there is for governments around the world. Within the U.S. government, obviously, there's a large intelligence community. They have their own sensor satellites up there, from what I understand. And yet they, they are the biggest consumer of the commercial market's sensor satellites. So they're the biggest consumer of Earth observation, the Maxars, the Black Skies of the Earth, the uh, Planet Labs. So they have a need not only for the commercial data they're trying to get to get that in a more timely fashion, but also for their own infrastructure. The U.S. government puts $60 billion a year into space-based infrastructure uh, in a lot of different applications, yet they're still limited by most of the same trouble that the, the commercial market has in getting that data to ground. And so they, they have a real need to get that data in a more timely fashion, as you can imagine, in, in a war fighting situation, adversarial situation, getting data that's eight hours old, well... <laughs> That can mean the difference between, you know, a one battle and a lost battle. So that's another key area. Then there's the, the human space flight and civil space, which is kind of all folded into the one. We've been putting astronauts into space for what, 70 years now, something like that. We operate one of the co-operators of the International Space Station. We, we have astronauts up there all the time. What they're doing in space and the, the mission itself and even for humanitarian needs, they, they need connectivity back to the earth as well. And that's an interesting uh, market there because uh, the only other real space data relay players are governments of the world. The market that we're filling actually exists today, but it's not being widely used for a number of reasons. So NASA has a, a set of geosynchronous satellites called the Telecommunication Data Relay Satellite Service, TDRIS, commonly known, that over the past 20 plus years, they've been putting satellites in geo to be able to, to relay the data back from, you know, their missions typically. But the majority of the commercial market can't operate on there. They don't have enough capacity to, to do what the commercial market needs to do. And to be fair for the U.S. intelligence community, they don't have enough capacity either. On top of that, NASA has been directed by Congress uh, and their own wishes to commercialize that. So they have stopped investing in launching their own TDRS network, and they are moving on completely to commercial-based solutions where we're ideally suited for picking up the pieces after they exit. So they've launched their last satellite in 2017. They now have a, a commercial services project, they call it the CSP project. So how big is this market? Do you, do you imagine that there's a, you know, an emergence of relay-type companies like, like Spacelink? And so you're picking your vendor, like, are you with Verizon or are you with, you know, Comcast or are you going to go with Spacelink? Because it seems like there's a few incumbent, almost like legacy, but they're not for the commercial market, right? Like you said, the Tedris solution. Yeah. You're now one that's entering with a commercial mission. So how big does this get? Yeah. So we work with the typical satellite analysts that are out there, NSR and some of the others that we talk to. We've had them look at this very closely. We've collected data from NASA through a Freedom of Information Act to find out how much they're being used. And we have convinced ourselves and, and through the analyst data that it's going to be a huge market. Over the next 10 years, we're looking at $20 billion or more spent on data relay applications. That's really at an infancy right now. So we're coming in at a great time. Uh, we feel like we're very well positioned. We've got spectrum rights. We've got internationally approved spectrum rights through the FCC. We've got patents, uh, advanced patents and advanced optical technology. We've got 
uh, a fantastic team. And we've got the backing from a great parent company, which has experience in, in that as well. We see some new space competitors that are talking about doing similar things to what we're doing, but in very different ways. So we, we feel like we're surpassing them even from the get-go. And then, you know, there's the, uh, there's an equivalent Tedris network in Europe that's funded by the European Space Agency called the European Data Relay Service. They'll continue on, but again, they don't really serve a lot of applications today. So we think we're ideally suited for, for capitalizing on this market, but we will see other players for sure. Cool. So there's a lot of people that are interested in, in space, right? And now you have the term new space. And it's a funny anecdote. So I've been working with Adirex since 2006, I think. 15 year anniversary this year. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, when I talked about that, they're like, oh, that's weird. You know, that's very esoteric satcom. And now when I tell people that I'm working with Idirect, they're like, oh, dude, so do you know Elon Musk? Like you have a space client, you know, that I say, oh yeah, we we actually helped launch OneWeb. And so space is cool. So a friend of mine, his kid, I don't know how old he is, maybe like 12 years old, wrote me a letter applying to Everhouse because <laughs> he heard we do space. So when you're ta- talking about this, like, you know, relay system in space and the space economy and on your website, you had a lot of good writing on this. You know, there's going to be tourists in space, researchers in space. We're discovering new things about Earth. There's all these like very like cool mission companies up there, right? One of our clients is actually Hawkeye 360. That's Adam Bennett. That's where Adam Bennett went. Yep. yep. And uh, they're doing RF, you know, they're, they're looking at RF data and it's like signals data that it provides a whole new like look at the earth, right? It's been a missing piece of the puzzle, right? But what excites you? Like, do you, do you see almost like a whole new sector of the economy being space? Do you see people going up there? Do you see like workers going up there to like Amazon delivering things into space, you know, people commuting to space for work? I'm exaggerating a little bit. Like, like, Describe for us like how cool this is and where it's going. I I think it's extremely cool. You know, I'm a geek, so I live and breathe this stuff. But here's some facts. You know, the the fact remains that there's been a huge jump. It's called new space, but I I really think it's space 3.0, actually, because it's kind of the third. You know, first you had the governments doing it only. Then you had the companies like Fuse and Gridium in the 90s that were venting VSATs and doing some new applications. Now it's really a, a third generation of that. And it's by far the biggest generation. Space economy is going to be over a trillion dollars a year uh, by 2030, from what I read, you know, and the, the, all the typical analysts. I think that one came out of Morgan Stanley. But, but why? Well, there's a couple of things happening. Why space and, and, and not Earth? Well, there's three things. Uh, I'm going to plagiarize somebody else. And I, I, unfortunately, I can't remember who said this, but there's three things you get in space you can't get on Earth. One is, perspective. You can't see Earth from Earth. From space, you can see all of Earth. The second is microgravity. There's a lot of things that need microgravity. There's new drugs being developed that that can be done with microgravity that cannot be done without it. And so that's a a very unique thing about space. And then the, the enormous vast vacuum that is space actually opens up a lot of possibilities for for industries that Yes, some we've thought of, but there's a ton that we haven't even thought of yet. And what's driving all this? Well, those are the drivers. Those are the things you can get in space. But the fact remains is that getting to space has never been cheaper. Over the past decade, the cost of launching a single kilogram into space, even back at OneWeb, the early days, we were doing 
more than $10,000 a kilogram to get stuff into space. And we thought we had a great deal then seven years ago. Right now, it is fairly common to be able to sign a launch agreement that is about $1,000 a kilogram. So we've had an order of magnitude reduction in the costs of getting stuff into space. So that's an enabler. Technology has moved on. As Moore's Law continues its rampage, things get smaller. You need less power to do things. That same technology stuff on Earth drives applications in space and allows satellites to be smaller and, and get up there cheaper and generate power for you know with less solar cells. So there's a lot of drivers that are driving that. And having industry in space, there's no doubt in my mind, there'll be factories on the moon, there'll be factories orbiting Earth. So that's just an industrial view of the world. Space tourism, you mentioned that. There's so many drivers that are, that are driving space application that we haven't even thought about. The more things we put into space has actually created what's known as the space junk industry, where we now have companies out there coming up with neat ways of cleaning up the space junk because launching more and more stuff leads to more and more stuff stuck in space. And now there's companies up there that are actually looking to do that. They all need connectivity back to the earth to, to do their job, to do what they're mm-hmm. trying to do. And I feel like we're at the, the same point in the U.S. economy that about the time the railroad started to be invented and, and moved out. You know, if you didn't have a global economy or even a national economy back in the, the late 1700s, but as, as railroads started to make distances very easy, you could transport stuff across there. We're at the same point of the infrastructure for the space economy uh, today. Awesome. So I have one, one more question on this. So the title of this podcast is Mission Earth. And so when we think about space, we initially think about discovering other planets, going to the moon, going to Mars, going to, you know, et cetera. And now we have this concept of going to space to look back on Earth, right? So is there a new mission from space in the sense that like part of what we do in space is fix Earth, right? And then, so like it would be great for you to, you know, to, to get your thoughts on that. And then within that mission, you've, you mentioned a few things like, you know, gigafires. What do you think of the biggest challenge or the most promising opportunities, you know, once we're focusing on Earth from space? Yeah, so... Space has been a big part of humanity learning about Earth and helping to fix problems for the past 60 years already. Let's take weather satellites, for instance. You know, it used to be a time where you didn't know weather was going to happen until it just happened, right? It just (laughs) just came. (laughs) You had no idea. Yet now, for the past 40 years, I'd say, weather satellites and and even ground-based radar, but really weather satellites have been a big part of predicting hurricanes before they develop, typhoons, all sorts of different things that have ultimately led to a lot more knowledge about weather in general, but also have saved lives to be able to, to get people out of harm's way. So it's been a big part already. I think we're really just at the infancy of learning more and more about um, ourselves on Earth and fixing Earth. We didn't know that there was a uh, hole in the ozone layer until we viewed it from space, right? So, and then we learned, wow, we're, we're starting to see uh, the climate heat up, global warming. It's, it's happening. And there's, there's things that we're doing on Earth that are harming the environment way more than we probably uh, figured through the industrial revolution. And now that we can see and detect some of those things, we can take steps on Earth to be able to to, to preserve and, and fix a lot of the, the natural resources you have on Earth. And I, I did hit on a couple of them, like fires, weather, and, and just observation in general, detecting floods. We have customers that, that are serving the fishing market, 
you know, fishing, you say, is that really a high-tech market? Well, there's a big problem with ships turning off their beacons and going dark and going and fishing into waters that are dangerously low or protected in, in a various manner by a country's boundaries or a country's waterways. And they're, they're further depleting the natural resource that we have. And so a lot of that can be easily detected from space. So I, I think there's just, again, at the infancy, and I think we'll just see more and more applications that will, will allow us to learn more about, about ourselves, about our earth, and, and how we can continue on as a species on this earth for hopefully a millennia to come. But then we'll develop the space flight economy in case we actually need to get off Earth. That's plan B. <laughs> that, that's Elon's pitch. That's not Or maybe we could pick who stays and who goes, right? <laughs> exactly. I think I saw a few sci-fi movies about that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> we stopped taking reservations. Well, I'd like to shift gears a tiny bit and go back to the technology with Spake Slink a little bit. I am not a CTO, so... I'm one thing I'm very curious about is we're talking about kind of a satellite relay network, like we'll just zap your data from here to here. But I know that has to be much trickier than just kind of shooting some lasers. So could you kind of talk about like, I imagine and you said too, you've got data from weather satellites, you have imagery, you have sensor data. So how do you work with all these different kinds of data? Is there any data that you can't work with or any special considerations that you have when putting up your satellites? It's a, it's a great question, Sarah. And that's a good time for me to explain more how our system actually works. <laughs> so the answer is we can handle any type of data. The, the data is, is what is available on these satellites. So we're, we're transporting the data back to ground. So how it works is we will have our customers put a, what we call a user terminal, a small optical terminal onto their satellites before launch. And once they're in space, and once we have our initial four MEO satellites, the Spacelink re relay satellites that are above them, then once we're up there and we have our ground network, we can grow that as we need to, as capacity increases. The way it works is, let's say an Earth observation, they have a user, maybe it's defense intelligence, maybe it's fishing. They want to go take pictures of a certain spot on Earth. And so what they do is they create a tasking order. It says, we want to go make this happen. What happens is that tasking order gets uploaded to, to the Earth observation satellite, either through us or through their ground pass, however it gets up there. We get the tasking order that says, hey, we, we want to be able to, we're going to be taking pictures uh, at a certain spot. We want to download that data as quickly as possible. And so we know when we need to go point our communications link, our lasers on our satellites to their lasers, their optical intersatellite links, OISL uh, devices. And then the link just happens. And, and then what happens, the data gets relayed into our payload on our satellites. And then we need to get it down to the ground station that's important to whichever one that the customer wants it to. So there's a lot of reasons to have that data not traverse any sort of international fiber or international network at all. So what happens is once the data gets into our, our MEO satellite, whatever MEO satellite is currently closest to the, to the LEO customer that we're serving, the data either goes directly back down to the ground through a RF link. We're using the, the Q and B bands, which are up in the, the 40, 50 gigahertz range of, of RF frequency. 
Uh, so we either get the data directly back down to the ground and hand it off to the Leo operators ground network. Typically, it's in the cloud somewhere with Azure or uh, AWS uh, cloud. Or we can take that data, hop it over to another Mio that happens to be above the gateway. So typically, in our case, it's going to be above the gateway that is currently connected to a Mio in the United States. And that's where the data will come down. And so government applications and even the commercial world, U.S. commercial operators that are serving the U.S. government, they can ensure their data is landed safely at a secure site within the United States. So we're doing optical links. And again, these are like, think of lasers on our customer satellite, gimbaled, pointing up towards our MEO satellite and tracking them as, as they go by each other, which is actually a lot slower than you'd think because we're, we're significantly above them. And then we send it, you know, so it's digital data, it's secure digital data at that point, it's all encrypted. Then we can send it off to another one of our satellites through another optical link, and then we modulate it and send it down to the ground, and then it gets turned in. So basically all the data we're talking about, it, it's all IP packets. It's, it's IP packets, just like our internet runs on the ground. That's the data standard that's being adopted for space. It's the most popular way to get things around. So we just... We're just effectively a space router getting the data back to where they need to get. Huh. That's very interesting. So like when your company just goes gangbusters and you have more business than you can handle, is scaling just a matter of putting up more Neo satellites or and more ground stations? That's exactly right. So we need a minimum of three satellites in our orbit in Mio to see any Leo satellites in any orbit any inclination at any altitude. So we need a minimum of three. We're doing four because we'll have an in-orbit spare, but that also gives us the ability to have more data collected, right? More opportunities. Our, we already have on our, our business plan adding four more satellites. So every satellite we add adds the ability to take more data from space to ground. Then we can grow our ground network, put some additional gateways here and there, all in secure locations. And it's a very scalable solution. Unlike the Leo world, so I, I was on one web, one of the most frustrating things with, with the Leo communications market is it's, you can't scale it one satellite at a time. The only way to scale it is to literally double the number of satellites. And that's why you see Starlink and OneWeb filing for additional satellite orbits because they need to put more and more satellites up there because they got to be in physically different locations and then they got to be able to talk to the ground. With our system, so, you know, if we have a minimum of three. So every satellite we add gives better visibility to the Leo customers, even though we're always in sight already, but it just simply adds capacity to our system. So we have a very, very incrementally scalable system. Cool. So do you have a benchmark? Like, so you mentioned eight hours. It might take right up to eight hours. What should it be? You know, microseconds, eight seconds, or how do we you say real time? So. We can provide real-time communications. We can get the data, you know, from a LEO satellite up to our MEO and across to another MEO and back to the ground. That's the longest path that we have, under 200 milliseconds. So to us, that is very much real-time. And typically, it'll be less than 100 milliseconds in one direction. Now, a lot of that data needs to be processed on the ground, right? You, they, they take these raw data images on the satellite, and then they use the cloud to do all their processing to convert it into images. So there is some delay there, probably seconds to be able to turn the raw data into there. But 
You're right. When we're going from a from a market that is ours to something that can literally be delivering images within seconds, that is real time. Well, that's awesome. Yeah, it's really cool. That's really cool. So you helped use the space for 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 internet, right? With with iDirect and Hughes, right? And what one web. Yep. Now it's like that's awesome. You're putting the the internet in space. That's exactly right. Which is really cool because like you can't have a business sector or an ecosystem without the internet, right? So even in space, you know, space needs the internet. That is absolutely our premise. And that's that's what got me excited about this opportunity. Like I said, it was a you know, it's a startup and it's technology. I'm a CEO. That's all great. But I I had to look at the market and believe in it. I'm late. Wow. I never thought about the fact that that the space economy is stuck in the dial-up age and literally stuck. And so it, it's great to be able to go off and do something in a new market uh, as well. Well, that was a really great conversation with Dave Bettinger, and I'm super grateful that uh, he came on today's episode. On episode three, we're going to ask the next question. If we have the internet in space, well, do we have a search engine for space data? Tune in next time, and thank you very much. Bye. Bye.